in Australia per capita, we actually have the highest uptake of rooftop solar. And I was like, why does Australia have all these amazing homes generating their own energy and no EV? If you have a Tesla Powerwall that's 14 kilowatt hours, your car already has seven times of the storage capacity in it than your little power wall. So why not use your car's battery instead of a power wall? Australia is a very interesting market because we have a very decentralized uh, energy market and almost less deregulated. We're, we're a little bit like a sandbox where, where you can say, okay, well, we'll try something new. And very few people know that there's 1,200 parking bays underneath the Sydney Opera House. And if only 300 of them had an EV that would be feeding back, you could take the Opera House off grid. Hey, Corella, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jack, uh, for having me. It's uh, great to be on. So tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm a startup founder. I founded a company called Everty, and we're a software platform to manage electric vehicle charging infrastructure. So essentially being the app and the backend system to for, for all infrastructure that's needed um, to charge up our EVs. That's amazing. And I know that EVs in Australia, they're really going through quite an exciting journey at the minute. And from our conversation before, one of the things that is fascinating about uh, electric vehicles and the market in Australia is the dichotomy between the, the solar industry, which has been booming for many years now, and the EV industry, which is maybe a little bit further behind. It's a fascinating story. Would you mind just maybe giving us a little bit of a lowdown on it? Yeah, absolutely. So, so look, solar was probably one of Australia's success stories. Like a lot of the, the IP and technology was developed in Australia before it was shipped off to China to, to actually be produced. So, so EVs are probably going through a similar journey than solar went through. And um, in Australia per capita, we actually have the highest uptake of rooftop solar. So we've got more than 3 million solar homes with a population of uh, 24 million people and way less less homes. And so we have this big solar penetration. And I, I used to work for a company that does like solar micros, um, batteries, like they're called Enphase Energy. And I was like, why does Australia have all these amazing homes that are so energy efficient, generating their own energy and no EVs? And yeah, so, so I think it, it, it was a matter of the time um, back then you could actually only buy Teslas and BMW i3s. Like it was a very like early stage emerging market. And, and so we're now catching up. But uh, yeah, we've got lots to do and uh, a long way to go still to catch up to Europe and uh, China and the US. As a founder driving the change within the EV market in Australia, I'm, I'm really keen to put you on the spot here. So what does the future of the electric vehicle industry look like? Honestly, I think um, cars are under the whole like Nokia smartphone movement. Like years ago, when, when we had our Nokias and Motorola's and whatever brand, I don't want to be like French, French shaming or naming, but we had a certain model of what would work. And then something new came in and completely disrupted the industry. And I think uh, cars are at that stage. Electric cars are just better technology, more efficient, cheaper to drive. Yes, at the moment, they're still more expensive to buy, but that cost will come down, as we've seen with 
LCD televisions or smartphones, like th these technology costs and the battery costs are coming down. And in uh, two, three years, well, almost now, for a lot of people, it doesn't even make sense to buy a diesel or petrol car anymore. And just thinking about the, the EV market over here in the, in the UK and, and in Europe, we're almost seeing a bit of a sort of divergence in the market. So you've got the, the, the commercial players that use EVs as a to provide a service. So obviously Uber, I think, is the is a really good example here. And a while back, Uber set a policy across the European business that all drivers had to move over to an electric vehicle. So you've then really got this quite mature market leveraging electric vehicles to provide a service. And then at the same time, these the consumer electric vehicle market is is starting to mature. We're seeing the EV infrastructure really develop. Really keen for your perspective. Do you see these two different types of markets and what impact that maybe has on the EV market and industry as a whole and where that sort of future is heading? Yeah, absolutely. So look, I, I'm obviously not a strategist at Uber, so I can't comment on uh, what made them go that way. But I think when you take another example, and that is Jaguar, so it, I think four or five years ago, the UK said, okay, we're going to phase out um, the sale of petrol and diesel cars by 2040. And then they said it's going to be 2035. And then they said it's going to be 2030. And then suddenly Jaguar said, okay, we're becoming an all electric car company because by 2030, we have nothing to sell. So we need to switch over to electric now to because it takes time for the big auto manufacturers to do that switch. And so they, they announced it. And I, I know there's discussions, are discussions going on in the UK now to moving it back from 30 to 35 and, and all these things. But I think generally what drives businesses is we need to have a product that we can sell, whether that's the car itself or whether it's Uber as a service. Um, they, they just need to adapt. And um, in Australia, we just had um, Uber Green launched uh, a couple of uh, months ago. And obviously, every time I get an Uber, I order an Uber Green. And I'm very happy to see more electric cars because they're just nicer to drive. If you think of all the noise and the vibration in a car that you don't have in an electric car, making a phone call sitting in an Uber that is an electric Uber is so much easier than doing it in a noisy car that's revving the engine. So yeah, that's uh, positive benefits all around. It really is an, a nicer experience, more times than not, isn't it? And obviously Teslas are lovely, nice, clean, minimalist environments. I, I love them, big fan of them. I know it's an industry where, particularly with Teslas, it's almost, it's, it's definitely become cool. Originally, I think, 10, 15 years back or something, at least in the UK, you used to see these little funny electric vehicles, just two seats, and they were absolutely tiny. They look like clown cars, and you see them zapping about. And then it's funny to now think that actually 10, 15, I don't know, maybe 20 years down the line, there are actually these really cool companies like Tesla that are leading the way, and people want to be part of it, which is cool, right? So there's definitely that sort of incentive for customers to step towards the world of electric vehicles because it's cool you elon musk and like him or hate him has done a lot for the for getting people interested in low carbon transports but then i guess it's also then an industry that was almost born out of incentives 
incentives for manufacturers to shift over to stop producing electric vehicles. I'm really interested to hear your perspective on whether this has been the success story that I think a lot of people refer to it as, and whether it's created any challenges for the sector, which was originally reliant on incentives and now is having to stand up on its own. Yeah, oh, no, you're spot on. So I'm going to bring it back to that example we used earlier with solar. When solar came in and you got all these incentives to put it on your roof or to, to build like commercial or large-scale solar, and you had uh, gen- very generous feed-in tariffs, at least here in Australia, that, that really moved a, an, an emerging industry forward. But that solar industry didn't have any incumbents other than the old coal generators and, and whatever, but it was completely new. Whereas I think with EVs, the incumbents, like they, they tried to give them the incentives to move forward, but they didn't actually do enough. You've heard companies talking about hydrogen and oh, the future of, of cars will be very different, but they actually didn't change. And so it needed the Teslas, the Lucids, the Rivian to say, hey, you know what, we can present a better opportunity. And knowing uh, that these days the Tesla Model Y sells better than a Toyota is p- pretty much like evidence of what needed to happen to these old incumbents because they're, they're not moving fast enough. Uh, incentives, uh, whether they're incentives there or not. And so I think compared to solar, where incentives worked really well, Yes, incentives worked as in convincing a few more people to buy an EV because they're, I don't know, 7,000 euros or pounds off of their uh, purchase price. But it was literally the new companies uh, giving the, the old ones uh, a run for their money. It is. It is. And hey, I, I'm a startup guy. I love seeing the sort of the smaller, more nimble, earlier companies challenging the big inc- incumbents particularly when some of the incumbents have benefited from an oligopoly for absolute decades. So I I personally love to see it. Speaking of incumbents, and I guess as EVs become increasingly more popular, it raises interesting questions around the role of traditional petrol stations. Do you see the existing infrastructure playing a part in the continuing growth journey of electric vehicles? Or do you think that we're moving much towards a sort of at-home, on-street type charging situation? I'll bring it back to my personal experience because obviously I've uh, been driving an EV for a number of years now. I, I was lucky enough that I was able to charge at home for the last two years, but even before then when I had on-street parking, I would probably charge my car rather in a shopping centre or any anywhere where I, I go. And so nowadays I mostly charge at home or at work. I would only go to a petrol station if I do long distance travel, like going from one city to another, and I need this super fast top up. But if I could choose between a petrol station and a shopping center, I would probably prefer the shopping center. Or if it were, like, uh, there's a funny story here in Australia where we have um, Tesla superchargers right in the car park of a very beautiful winery in a tourist a- area which is halfway between two cities. And that's when you stop for lunch. And so I always question, like, well, depending on what your needs are, but I'd rather stop for a nice lunch than getting a coffee at a a convenience store based in a petrol station. But it it depends. Other people might be under time pressure. It doesn't fit into their journey planning. 
there's probably a little bit of we, we need so much infrastructure it will be used wherever it's going to be built but when it comes to to petrol gas stations i think that they just know they're not going to sell petrol in five or ten years time so they need to come up with new inventive uh, models and ev charging is obviously the the nearest, most explainable way for them to, to say <clears throat> we're reinventing ourselves. But whether people actually want to go there, um, I'm not sure yet. Thank yeah, I, I would never consider a gas station as a destination out of choice. But it's, uh, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that infrastructure, which is very much embedded in the world that we live in, there's gas stations everywhere. Um, it will be interesting to see how that plays a part and maybe how some of those so big oil and gas incumbents start transitioning. I think there's a, the jury's out on whether they should be allowed to play a role in that transition, but uh, that's a separate debate. One of the things I'd love to think about is, is this sort of the topic of like standardization. And with the sort of growth of a sector, which is amazing, it then naturally brings sort of new hurdles, new challenges and everything. And now with so many different electric vehicle manufacturers and pumping station uh, owners and, and everything else, we now have actually found ourselves with a bit of a challenge of, hey, we need to standardize the market here because otherwise the integration, customer experience is going to be really quite problematic. And in prepping for this conversation, I spoke to a friend called Tony, who is my go-to EV expert. So shout out to Tony for this. And he was telling me about when the railways were first built, they all had different gauges and it was critical to success of rail travel that trains could use the full networks. And they then had to start thinking about how you could standardize it and integrate the full network. And I feel like the EV market might be in a similar position now. Um, really keen for your perspective on this and where, whether you, where you think that's going. Yeah, oh, absolutely. so with the, the railway gauges, and I think it's also um, a similar topic with the height of um, bridges, uh, what truck or what boat or vessel fits underneath like a certain bridge. And that, that's obviously a very like technical reality driven aspect of making it work. And the EV sector has figured it out mostly for itself. Obviously, in Europe and in Australia, we're using CCS2 as a fast charging standard. In, in the US, it's CCS1, and the, the Japanese still have a little bit of their chatting more going on, but it's all very localized. So, so what I see with that, no, no one would go and travel from America to uh, Europe or, or Australia and bring their car and say, oh, it doesn't fit the same plug system. So I think from a technical point of view, we've got that sorted out. And then the next level is obviously the customer experience. How easy is it uh, to, to use a charger? And with a petrol station, you have a shop and you walk in there and you pay with your credit card. You don't often have shop necessarily right next to a charger because a charger can be a standalone thing anywhere on the side of the street or the side of the highway. But I think people have understood there's different methods of paying. It could be tapping your credit card. It could be an app. It could be an RFID. And eventually that will all align and there's new standards like plug and charge where you don't need any of that anymore, where the car and the charger can directly communicate uh, with each other. I think we're seeing it, but it's still early days for the market, but it's exciting because it allows for new companies to come in with new business models to say, hey, I give you this energy contract 
for all your EV charging and your home charging. It's it's just similar to when the smartphone first came out. I think it had what a handful of useful apps, and we thought, oh, how great are smartphones? And now you have like hundreds of thousands of apps that you can download for for your smartphone. And yeah, so we're we're just going through the same motion, and it'll take some time for for the markets to align. And I know that sort of layer around customer experience is something that you're very much focused on at Everty, right? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we ask that back end to the EV driver, giving them the experience and making it very easy to charge their EV. But then also we're the, the back end to the charge point operator or whoever yeah, puts the, the charger in the ground so that they can actually improve the reliability of the asset, the uptime, uh, making sure that can be like monitored remotely 24-7, managing the energy throughput as uh, the whole billing of how people pay for EV charging. And that's, of course, important because if you can't build a sustainable business model around EV charging, no one's going to invest in the infrastructure. And you spoke earlier about the incentives and subsidies. And yes, governments have paid a lot of money for companies to install it, but it, over time, it needs to be a sustainable business model so the market can carry itself. Like we can't rely on government incentives for the next like five decades. And one of the interesting positions that, that Australia is now in is with China, Europe, US being slightly further ahead in terms of maturity of their EV market. I imagine there are a lot of learnings that Australia can benefit from because China, US, They've, they've been through all this sort of tricky first-time challenges and Australia can now say, hey, thanks for all your learnings. Thanks for making the mistakes. We're going to take that and we're going to run with it and we're going to go ahead. What sort of learnings do you think maybe are available for Australia to benefit from that? Yeah, oh, that is such a good point. So uh, I try to leave China a little bit to the side just because there's such a top-driven, government-driven market if they want to do something, they just quickly change regulation and it just happens. So they're very efficient in, in driving change forward. And that's, again, because they don't have a lot of incumbent automakers. Like for China, the EV industry was their first foray into the automotive sector. And therefore, a lot of the energy is some state and group controlled. So it's easier for them to make changes. <clears throat> Whereas in the US, Australia, and Europe, our energy markets are all very like private markets, different arrangements. What we do see, though, in Australia is some of the things that have happened, for example, where, as you said, the customer experience being able to use every charger anywhere, whether that's like through apps or fobs or whatever system, which we call in our industry usually like interoperability or roaming. So the Europeans attacked it or tackled it in one way that they put a clearinghouse on top and they brought in all the providers to, to give you that seamless experience, which makes total sense. There's 27 countries in the European Union, a lot of different languages, very fragmented, a very mature market with a lot of providers. Whereas in the US, there are less providers they're more concentrated and they have then, instead of putting an, another layer on top, they've said we work together as partners in a sort of peer-to-peer -peer system of how we exchange that information. And so Australia was in that lucky position to follow, look at Europe, look at the US and where do we think we're going to play? And given that Australia is one big country with just a 
handful of states and very few players, we're probably more leaning towards the US way where the the market sorts itself out without too much regulation and, and bodies on top because every time you introduce a layer on top of another layer, on top of another layer, everything becomes more expensive. And so you actually do see in Australia some of the lowest charging rates for public charging in the world. So if you charge a car in Germany or in the UK or even in the US, you pay much more than you do in Australia because we don't have that complexity in the system yet and we'll try to avoid it. That's a really interesting point. It's funny how a industry can look so similar to your average person. When you get into the nuts and bolts of it, it's significantly different to other countries and other markets. And it creates a really exciting opportunity for new innovations to come into play when it is that sort of free market type environment. And I, I really hope that the Australian market really accelerates in their, their growth trajectory and, and makes the most of that. One of the points that sort of comes to mind with sort of the growth of the EV market is the amount of energy that is required to fuel and to support that those electric vehicles. And obviously, in Australia, it is one of the best places in the world for solar energy. And I, I don't know how, how well the sort of solar energy is integrated into their energy grid there. But one of the key hurdles that we need to get over as a, as a sort of global economy for wide scale EV adoption is building resilience into our energy grid to meet this sort of continual surge in demand. Really keen for your perspective on this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you're, 100% right. We are blessed with a lot of sun and a lot of wind and even like wave energy and hydro. So Australia has all the potential in the world to be a renewable energy superpower. Unfortunately, we also have a lot of coal and resources and mining going on in our country. But on any given day, renewable energy these days in the middle of the day make up between 55 to 70% of all of our energy. So the things that we really need to watch out for is what do we do at night when the sun isn't shining, etc. And so obviously, yes, at the moment, Australia, unfortunately, still has a lot of coal as base load power. But as batteries become cheaper and as we're getting more sophisticated in managing the energy in the grid, we, we have that potential. And, and EVs are exactly that. They're batteries on wheels. So instead of like just saying, oh, we're having all this fixed battery storage to support pumped hydro or to support when the sun isn't shining, like the, the, the batteries are already there. I mean, if, if you have a Tesla power wall that's 14 kilowatt hours, your car already has seven times of the storage capacity in it than your little power wall. So why not use your car's battery instead of a power wall? So I'm, I'm really excited about what most people call it vehicle to grid. Um, we normally call it vehicle to X, to anything that can go into a building, into a battery, into you, you name it. Uh, and that's something where Australia is a very interesting market because we have a very decentralized uh, energy market and also compared to some more more mature or bigger markets almost less deregulated we're, we're a little bit like a sandbox where where you can say okay well, we'll try something new the Australians are very very forgiving for trying things out before they are then brought to uh, Europe or the US on a big scale I, I completely see that and there's a a really booming 
infrastructure tech market in Australia at the minute, because not only does Australia have the, the big mega projects, for example, within the transport sector, but also actually from speaking to all of the startup founders I know, like you say, the Australian decision makers within the industry are so much more excited and ambitious and again, forgiving around the curve that new innovation often goes through. So it really does create such an exciting opportunity for that sort of sandbox type environment. And I guess sort of sticking on the point around Australia, one of the, I think, challenges that comes up around the world, but I imagine particularly with Australia, is how is the fact that urban areas are often getting a lot more attention when it comes to EV charging infrastructure. And maybe some rural areas often lack that same level of accessibility. Really keen for your thoughts on how we can bridge that gap and ensure that electric vehicles are inclusive and available to everyone across those sort of really diverse geographic regions. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the points where I would say government should step in and they are stepping in. So the Australian government is actually funding a lot of regional remote fast charging locations because they know that for the private uh, providers, they go into where they can make money and where ca- they can get a return. And it, it might be a long return to put a charging station into the outback and it's uh, hardly being used. So it has to be a mix. And uh, that's what governments are obviously there for. And, and they do the same with telecommunication and energy. Yes, if it was only uh, left to the telecommunication providers, they would only work in the cities. They would not build out their network in the outback. And and so that's just like a social contract we need to come up with and we need to follow. uh, Same with water supply to small towns, etc. But it's really important to remember that even though we want that equity, to have the right timing and the right sequencing for it, because the statistics in Australia is we, we always talk about how big this country is and the tyranny of distance and we're all driving hundreds of kilometers every day. The average um, commute of an Australian is 40 kilometers a day. So if you have an EV that has a 400 kilometer range, you can go 10 days without even recharging your EV because you're mostly driving in a city and that's where you're based. So I think it's really important to make sure with these growing and emerging markets to listen and and watch the speed of where they're heading and then roll out that infrastructure where it's needed first and foremost. And at the moment it is in the urban centers, but not to forget the regional and remote locations, but have a plan for them to come along as they get more EVs. Yeah, that, that's a really interesting fact, actually, and maybe one that folks outside of Australia maybe won't have expected. Thinking about the future, thinking about the where the market is going, just one final question to finish, Carola. What are you most excited about when it comes to the EV market? Oh, gosh, I could probably talk for another two hours on that topic. So the thing that I'm really most excited about is that we're seeing this convergence of um, energy and infrastructure and uh, the built environment and and transportation. And so 10 years ago, no one would have said, what can a petrol car do for a building? Because they just didn't connect. There was no connection between the two other than was parking there. But now suddenly that car is an energy asset and it can actually help the building. And so I always like use this 
No, not that this is a reality yet, but um, everyone knows the Sydney Opera House, like one of our most famous uh, landmarks. Uh, very few people know that there's 1,200 parking bays underneath the Sydney Opera House. And if only 300 of them had an EV that would be feeding back, you could take the Opera House off grid. You could power a whole opera just with the cars that are sitting underneath in the basement car park. That, that's just obviously one iconic building, but that's the same for every office building, every commercial building, every shopping center. So that this future of, of energy being totally distributed by cars and buildings and the energy grid, that is so exciting because we can be probably a lot more efficient with the resources that we have and we don't need all the generation and all the coal, but also we probably need less solar and wind farms if we're just getting smarter in how we distribute energy. I told you that was the last question, but I've, I've got a bite because that's just such an interesting point. I'm sorry. How do we get there? So you, there's all of this potential and all of this opportunity, but what, what change needs to happen, if, if any? How do we accelerate our journey to the future? Basically through two ways. Uh, one, obviously, is policy and legislation to, to open up for the new market and these new concepts. But the other thing is really also the technology to adapt. And, and while bidirectional charging is not new, it's been proven, it can be done. Um, a lot of this is still stuck in either the car manufacturers not making it available or the grid providers saying, we don't know where these cars are and how do we even forecast when they want to feed in and how do we control it so there's still a lot of like traditional technical thinking and then business processes that need to to align the technology that's there we can do it but now we really need to get into implementing it into sound sustainable business models cool brilliant Corella, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a fascinating conversation and I'm so excited to see EVs becoming even more embedded in the world that we live in. Thanks, Jack. It was so good to participate in your podcast.